Main menu. Main menu. Main menu. Main menu. So this is an inaugural edition of Main Menu and also, of course, the first program on ACB Radio Mainstream. Nice to be here with a new look ACB Radio. Gosh, we've been doing a lot lately. <laughs> and uh, it looks like we have everything up and running so far so good. We have the ACB Radio Cafe playing music by blind and vision impaired musicians. We have ACB Radio Treasure Trove, which is offering old-time radio. And here we are on ACB Radio Mainstream. Don't forget to check out the website. It's a completely rewritten website. Well, we've got a busy program lined up for you for this first edition, but before we tell you about what's coming up, let me tell you a bit about the philosophy of the Main Menu Show. Main Menu is here every week at 1 o'clock GMT on Monday mornings. That's 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday night in the United States, 1 o'clock in the afternoon New Zealand Time, 11 o'clock in the morning on Monday in Eastern Australia. Main Menu is looking at technology, but we use that term in its broadest sense. We're not just talking about blindness technology with respect to computers and screen readers. We're also talking about technology such as microwaves and other appliances, and we're looking at mainstream technology from a blind person's perspective. For instance, we hope to have software developers on the program in the coming weeks, or web designers of general websites that are particularly accessible, or perhaps are not particularly accessible, so that we can quiz them about that. So we hope you'll enjoy the program. We're confident it will be your definitive source for technology news as it affects blind and vision impaired people. Welcome to Main Menu. Good to have you along. On the program today, we're going to be talking shortly about what everybody else has been talking about, the Microsoft verdict. What does it mean for the blind and vision impaired? We've got a panel of experts to tell us. We'll also be looking at Kurzweil 1005.0. The Education Division of Learn Out and Houseby, formerly Kurzweil Educational Systems, has just released this following CSUN. And we'll be sp- speaking with the key programmer from uh, Kurzweil, Stephen Baum, about what's in there and looking at the talk of this release, really. And that's real speak. We have a copy of it here and we're going to be putting it through its paces as part of that look at Kurzweil 1005.0. A lot of other features in it too, though, so Stephen Baum will tell us all about them. The Logitech iTouch keyboard allows you to take your keyboard away and of course this has particular benefits for blind people who don't need to be close to a screen. Scott Rakowski tells us all about that. DJC is along looking at a talking microwave with his neighbour Joy Tilton. We'll also hear from Matt Campbell who'll be introducing us to Linux in what will be a regular feature on main menu and we'll also be looking at the pros and cons, the trials and tribulations of being a beta tester in a rather tongue-in-cheek way. All that and more to come on this edition of ACB Radio's Main Menu. The verdict is out. Microsoft has been found guilty of breaching US antitrust law. They have been acting anti-competitively, and the remedies are still to come. Everybody's been talking about it, but what we want to find out is what would it mean, if anything, for blind and vision-impaired people if Microsoft is broken up, or perhaps if some other remedy is found. We're going to discuss that now with a group of people. We have Debbie Cook on the line. Debbie doesn't live too far away from the Redmond, Washington campus of Microsoft, where it all happens. She's also been involved for some time now with computer-related advocacy on behalf of the American Council of the Blind. 
Kelly Ford is a former employee of the Trace Research Centre who's now involved in assistive technology training and is still a staunch advocate for accessibility. And Dawa Shandro has set up his own website about accessibility. That's how passionately he feels about it. That's proactiveaccess.org. They all join us on the line now thanks to the uh, conferencing services kindly provided to ACB Radio by Spiderphone. We'll start with you, Debbie. Um, what do you think it all means for blind and vision impaired people? You know, it's going to, um, um, it's probably in some ways a little bit premature to totally know, of course, because we don't know exactly, although we know what the verdict is, we don't know exactly how that outcome will play out. Um, I certainly think in the, in the short run, there will not be any um, specific issues. My, Microsoft um, has um, done some things which are not product-specific, um, and, and so I think that, that those things are probably going to be possible to, to carry out. But one of the things that I think happens in general for people, anytime you have one of these breakups, um, if you look at the history of, of, of telephone company breakups, for example, the, the whole issue of um, as products move away from a, from a central source or from a central connection, who becomes responsible for them? And, and in our world, you know, where we think about that is, you know, I have a PC, I have a screen reader, I have an operating system and I have an application and something has just gone wrong and and no one is going to take any responsibility or credit for that event and um and I think we may see that um become the case a little bit more as we if we in fact break up um separate um internet explorer more from from the operating system or separate other components from the operating system but really until um Recent developments, really, at least with Internet Explorer, for example, until IE4, we weren't that closely tied to the operating system. So in, in some ways, it, it may appear to be business as usual, at least in the short term. Kelly Ford, should we be delighted, concerned, or isn't this really going to matter to us? I think that we should be cautiously concerned. Uh, if... Microsoft is merely penalized and has uh, certain restrictions placed on their business practices, uh, perhaps uh, pricing restrictions on the operating system and things like that. I don't think it'll have much of an impact on people who are blind, uh, other than what it does for the main computing population, which would probably be a positive. If Microsoft is broken up, um, I think that we will have to be very concerned. Um, it's hard enough to get the accessibility team talking to all of the various people developing software at Microsoft. I mean, we've seen in certain areas, Internet Explorer and Office, great inroads made where, the, where all the different programmers are communicating. If Office is suddenly not in the same company as the access team, what reason is there going to be for them to talk at all? And I, I really think that uh, from a disability perspective, I I would be gravely concerned if Microsoft were broken up myself. Daryl Shandro, what's your take on this? Well, first of all, uh, at this point, uh, I come out uh, on Microsoft's side for the sake of accessibility. However, if Microsoft is broken up, uh, I believe that the accessibility concerns will depend on what happens for everybody. 
I see there are two possible courses that things could take after such a breakup. Number one, things could just become chaotic and every company that is broken off of Microsoft, uh, the, the operating system company, the web internet browser company, the Microsoft, uh, you know, the office software company, Word, Excel, etc. Uh, they could just go off and all do their own things and uh, when when things are upgraded and changed, they all have their own user interfaces. Or, number two, uh, this could uh, result in some kind of standardization. Uh, maybe some kind of open standards would be uh, uh, implemented over time. If that were the case, uh, possibly we could uh, insert accessibility into those standards. And if that happens, that would be a positive thing for us. It sounds to me like what some of you are saying is that perhaps some of the consumer organizations of the blind should be using their muscle to advocate against a breakup of Microsoft. Has ACB given any consideration to their stance on this, Debbie? Oh, I don't, I don't think we really have formally. I think that, I think it's, I, in the first place, I'm not sure actually that we have much impact on that. This is really on a roll. This is, this is one of those deals where the Justice Department is is um, going to actually do a pretty unprecedented thing and is actually taking a position on something. And and there's a lot of remember that 19 of the 50 states are are involved in this. It's a fairly unprecedented kind of situation. And and I guess I'm not as certain that there will be as much of a of a breakup as an outcome of this as I think there may be. Um, a requirement for unbundling because the bundling issue has been the issue that has really been a prevalent sore point and a and a prevalent frustration. I mean, if you think about the fact of if you are if you are the CEO of 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 a competitive browser, but but the other guy's browser always comes you know with their operating system. I mean, it's bad enough that they control the operating system, but you might concede that, you, you know, I haven't developed an alternative operating system yet. But if I do have an alternative browser, I'd, I'd really like the option, you know, to have my browser be bundled by the customer's choice with the operating system. So what you're talking about is um, is the issues of of whether or not things stay bundled. And where I think we may... Um, may lose some ground in terms of the coordination of accessibility is is from the standpoint of of how much of that accessibility comes you know through the operating system and whether the you know and and how closely that's tied uh, part of i believe part of their argument you know is the idea that 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 as as they become more closely tied together they're able to more closely control accessibility and you know i don't know how i don't know exactly if that's the case, or if it's simply the case that the uh, that Internet Explorer is being a relatively newer product, it was much easier to design accessibility into it. I know, for example, in Office, because I just know this, um, that there are legacy there's legacy code in Office that actually goes all the way back to um, Word 2, and that they cannot get out, and that some of the issues that we have about accessibility in Office, which is considered a relatively accessible application, are barriers that are entrenched in there because of the fact that it's an old, old application that is continuously built on 
Um, I know that, for example, some of the reason that Encarta is, you know, and some of the other applications are not able to be more accessible more quickly is because of the turnaround time that those applications have forced upon them to stay even with the operating system development. If some of those restrictions were lifted but the commitment to accessibility was still present, we might actually make some progress on some applications we've not made much progress on. So I'm not sure that it's that we know necessarily whether we should take that kind of a stand. Right. Well, here's so, something to think about, Demi. Yes. Uh, there's a big if in what you said. Yes. Uh, if if the commitment to accessibility, I mean, everyone's got different opinions. I'm not sure how high up the corporate ladder Microsoft's commitment to accessibility extends. Publicly, they'll tell you that it goes to the top. Programmatically and results-wise, I'm not sure that it does. I would agree with you. I, I mean, I don't know how far off of the initial question we want to go, but, you know, I mean, I could give you examples of newer web technologies that Microsoft's deploying that don't work with active accessibility. Right, exactly. That's that's part of the whole issue is that it hasn't necessarily done them much better to stay in the large corporate structure because active accessibility hasn't been... We, well, we haven't really heard the term evangelized for a couple of years now, so maybe it's out of phase, but we all know what it means. So it's not been evangelized throughout their culture recently. And I also know from talking to people on, you know, on the office team over time that they're not sure active accessibility is even the way to make office accessible. So, you know, I mean, maybe, I, I guess I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I don't think we have enough data yet to know whether we're going to be better off or worse off. We can get comfortable with what we're, yes. what we're now familiar with. Uh, and what I would suggest oh, is yeah. that you look at what IBM have done with their accessibility efforts. Uh, they really, although OS2 was kind of in, in the background and not terribly significant these days, they didn't need nearly as much uh, hitting over the head as the consumer movement has no. uh, had to do with Microsoft. You look at Sun, for instance. Okay. Now, Sun has jumped on the accessibility bandwagon pretty readily. Uh, maybe we have got a, a, a culture that's not doing us any good in Microsoft and that we may be better having it broken up. There, there is that possibility. I mean, not, as IBM had OS2 taken off, uh, it's possible our access would have been a lot further along. I don't know if any of you guys used the IBM screen reader for OS2. Yes. You know, it was pretty slick to what it did, and it was pretty tightly integrated into the operating system. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I, I suppose that in any situation like this, we as advocates can become kind of familiar with the people involved in the processes. And so they're kind, you know, the, the relationship, I think, between the consumer movement, particularly the US consumer movement and Microsoft is a very interesting one. Uh, it's almost become cozy. And there are some who are on the sidelines who actually criticize the consumer movement for being so cozy with Microsoft. Uh, and yet, as Debbie has pointed out, when you actually look beneath the, the glitzy service of, uh, surface of Microsoft Office and Internet Explorer, you know, what else is there really? And, and, but on the other side of that, um, I think the other thing that we really do have to keep in mind, and, and I can be pretty tough on Microsoft at, at points, and, I'm, and although I live near them, I don't have to support them. But, um, but, but, the, but the other part of it that you do have to keep in mind is that at least in terms, terms of current development and software, they, whether you think it's enough, they've really taken a, a leadership role. Now, the problem is, is where are we leading from, of course? You know, and, and, and I think we'd all be in agreement about that. But, you know, when I, I've had a lot of conversations with people at Netscape, for example, 
And I can tell you that over over the years, my conversations with people at Microsoft have been better. I mean, I remember my first visit to the campus, and it was not too pleasant. And I remember my most recent visit, and it was better. I mean, much, much better. Well, um, you know. look at this. I mean, Netscape has the first preview version of uh, 6.0 coming out today. Right. Now, how much hype and talk on all the blindness lists are going to be about it or people rushing to download it? Probably not many. No. So, Microsoft, I mean, this is a little bit of an overstatement because I think that they, they are at least trying, you know, but, you know, in some ways they're the best of the worst, I mean. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where we're sitting with this. You know, and go, go, we, talk to, go talk to Intuit. Ask them if they're oh really God. taking access. Yes, I did that recently. Okay, the other thing that I so then so then I think what we're talking about in terms of commitment is not really about the commitment of 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 Bill Gates or of some other you know parts of their corporate structure, but is actually the commitment inside the teams themselves and whether those teams are part of one structure or not. Um, there is actually quite a bit of commitment, and there's and and I think that there's a number of there are a number of things that are working against them. I mean, time time constraints, production constraints forced by the operating system, legacy code issues. Um, you know, whether corporate really puts enough commitment behind it for the amount of work that there really is to do. Um, I, I think that if if it breaks up or if it diversifies in a significant way, we have a tremendous advocacy responsibility, but I think we can move out there immediately on it and say, you know, now we actually have the potential to, to work with a, a number of, of, of divested organizations to increase accessibility instead of putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, if that were to happen, and 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 I don't think it will, but if it were to, I think that would be I think that would be a, a real possible way of getting some rather quick um, again to borrow their term evangelism in a little bit better into the system. I'd like to ask you a question, Debbie. Yeah. Um, and, and Jonathan and Daryl to think about this because something that Debbie said is something that I've always thought about when it comes to accessibility and all of this. Debbie, you talked about all the constraints that the programmers, let's say, at Microsoft are working against to make access happen. To me right now, the bottom line is that making your software accessible or your website, and for the most part, does not, uh, you know, we live in a, a free enterprise market, and accessibility is not profitable. Yeah, that's right. Okay. What, what I wonder, and, and maybe, Jonathan, we could talk about this a little bit if you're interested, is, whether the Section 508 guidelines and rules that are coming out from the feds will, in some ways, make accessibility profitable, or at least it's something the corporation has to be more aware of, because failure to do it could mean loss of government contracts. Um, if we're going to talk about that, I have a really strong statement to make about that. I worked on the Section 508 um, that... Um, Advisory committee that that you know developed the initial recommendations for the um, for the access board, and um, and and I, what I will say about this, and and for people who aren't maybe totally familiar with with what this is, this is um this is um legislation from the United States Congress that basically would um, tell the federal tells the federal government that it needs to provide comparable access for people with disabilities to. Um, information um, and electronic and information technologies as is provided to the general public. And we spent a lot of time talking about what that was. Now, 
the, the rule that has actually been um, put forward for public comment, and um, we probably need to actually do a whole um, special discussion somewhere on ACB Radio about this so we can explain to consumers what the, what the rule really does say and what some of the problems are. Um, there's a lot of very, very good material in there, but in reality, there are a couple of very serious loopholes that we need to comment on, and one of those is that um, as it stands right now, um, basically what, what they're going to say is that if things are not technologically um, ready, you know, to go, and the, and the examples that they gave were things like um, um, PDAs and things, um, if, if things like this were not, if the accessibility wasn't developed in, you couldn't require that they put it in, you, you, you know, could only require them to do what was considered technologically feasible. And see, I, I want Section 508 to, to expand the feasibility of things and prove that they're not technologically feasible. So I don't want to ask you to do things that are impossible, but I don't want to just say, well, we don't have it today, therefore go ahead and buy them. It doesn't matter. They don't have to be accessible. So I'm making a very simplistic discussion of that, but actually Section 508 might make a huge difference um, and it will certainly make a huge difference for products where there is accessibility in those products. Um, but I think it also needs to make a difference when we're talking about these things, about the Microsoft products and things. I think it also needs to make a difference with respect to um, to design. Just in terms of the, the potential um, re uh, remedies that might be applied in the Microsoft case, if you have more... Uh, competition in this market, then clearly there's a lot more pressure on who is first to market with a product, uh, and that in terms of ensuring that provisions such as 508 are actually executed fairly, um, that may be a little bit more difficult because uh, you know you've already cited an example, Debbie, where Microsoft claim that they can't make Encarta accessible because they have to keep up with changes in the operating system. Of course, the irony is that they wouldn't say that we have to leave mouse support out because we haven't got the time, uh, which just goes to show to me that there's still a, a culture in Microsoft that says under certain circumstances you can make accessibility discretionary. But if there is going to be more competition out there, uh, is it going to be even more difficult to enforce uh, these sorts of provisions, or can we rely on them to kind of uh, slow down the, the tide of innovation? This is Darrell. Um, okay, uh, speaking of the competition, if we can get a 508 rule that is uh, somewhat stronger, as uh, some of the stuff I've been reading with the uh, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, uh, wouldn't uh, it be useful for a competing company, Microsoft or Sun or Netscape or some, somebody like that, uh, say, for example, in the browser market, uh, to advertise to the government, hey, my product is the first to meet 508 standard. It is, uh, it is the most accessible, and if you buy this one, you'll avoid a potential uh, grievance or lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Well, Microsoft was at the table during the, all the 508 discussions, as was IBM. Netscape was not. So that tells you something. Um, so Microsoft has every intention, whether it's one company or, you know, 57 little ones, they have every intention of meeting those standards. They want to sell to the federal government. The federal government is big time procurement. Microsoft um, 
does for the products they sell to the federal government probably pretty closely already meet the 508 guidelines. Um, you know, I'd have to I'd have to take a closer look. But for example, in Internet Explorer, which of course is, comes with the operating system, but if it were being sold as a separate product, you know, as a as a buy along product, um, it it um, it it is probably already um, compliant. And so. Um, you know, because the, the requirements are not, uh, you know, they're not as stringent as they as they might be in some respects. But certainly, a lot of other products are not. So, uh, the government, the things that that the government buys, I mean, the government does buy Office. So, you know, Office and is going to be more likely to be compliant than. Again, the example I gave you was Encarta. The government doesn't buy probably a lot of Encarta. So, Encarta, there's not going to be a push on Encarta. And Encarta has. A market-driven upgrade requirement that's different than Microsoft's competition, you have to produce a new encyclopedia every year. The whole world of knowledge changes. So that's one of the requirements of having um, a software-based encyclopedia, I guess. So um, so basically, um, yes, I think it's going to make a difference in the areas of software development and in the areas of some of those kinds of things. Where I'm, where I'm not clear and where I have to give some more thought to is it going to make enough difference is in the new technologies, in, in things like the PDAs and some of those kinds of things where the accessibility of those things is not quite as clearly outlined. We know what to do to make a piece of software accessible. We know exactly what that entails. We don't know what that entails entirely when it comes to things like, um, you know, PDAs. I'm interested, um, just getting back to the accessibility of software, um, Qualcomm is a company that we haven't talked about uh, on this call, and of course they make Eudora, which is one of the most accessible email clients out there, and yet they've just gone ahead and, and done that, haven't they? I think they've, they've followed good operating system programming. Part of the reason I think that is, and I'm, I'm not... I don't have an in with Qualcomm, but I do know a bit of the history of Eudora. And, you, you know, Eudora started as uh, one of its early versions was on the Macintosh. And to write successful code for the Macintosh required that you follow a lot more tightly uh, operating system rules for programming. Now, I, uh, I could be totally off base here, and if you guys know I am, feel free to tell me, but... I'm guessing that some of that programming behavior of writing good code, following standard procedure, carried through to the Windows versions of Eudora. And that's my, that's my guess. I don't think Eudora set out and said, I want to write an email program that works well with a screen reader. Oh, no. In fact, Qualcomm didn't have a clue that that's what it, that it even did. Yeah. And that's one of our problems with, with accessibility. The, the programs that work great don't happen by consciousness, and the programs that work poorly don't happen by consciousness. Yeah. But is, that not, is that not necessarily a bad thing? I mean, here you have somebody who's, or, or a company that's followed conventions and come up with a perfectly accessible product, and surely it follows, therefore, that if everybody followed those same conventions, and Microsoft are, of course, the worst for ignoring their own conventions that they recommend to third-party developers, uh, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. Well, exactly. 
if you look at Intuit, again, somebody raised the issue of Intuit earlier, and they're a very good example of a company that actually their you know, versions of, of for example, Quicken followed proper standards and proper window classification standards and, and, um, and all that sort of thing for a good long time, and they've always incorporated you know, keystroke commands into the product and, in fact, still have those, although you can't tell what those keystrokes did, but they're there. Um, but now they've completely abandoned any kind of proper controls for their window classes. Uh, they literally draw them on the screen. I mean, they are, they are graphic art um, windows. They are not – they actually all are one class. Um, the whole program now just about is one, one class of window, and yet on the screen, visually, that doesn't look to be the case. It looks cooler and cooler all the time. And when we talked to them about the fact that you, they gave up something that they used to do well, I mean, it isn't like they never did it and have to go out and figure it out. They actually gave it up. And it would be possible to retain that and still have the look and feel that they currently want to have and all of the clutter that they want to create. They have absolutely no interest in this. And we won't get anywhere with this one because there's nothing that will force this issue because Quicken also isn't bought much by the federal government. So there isn't going to be Quicken and TurboTax. So there's just not going to be much way to, to leverage them. But they actually gave up accessibility that they had. Well, there's some interesting thoughts there. I'm going to have to start to, to round this off. And as I do that, I might like to, uh, I think we'll go back to the three of you in, in turn uh, and just get some thoughts as to the remedies that you think may occur in this uh, Microsoft case, which, although we've strayed a little, is what brought us together. Uh, start with you, Daryl. What do you think is actually going to happen? I think that uh, Internet Explorer will be uh, unbundled from... Uh, Windows and uh, that uh, Microsoft may be fined substantially, and that's probably about all. Kelly Ford, what do you think? Uh, I, if I would probably say Microsoft would probably probably be told to come up with some sort of standard pricing for their operating systems. Uh, probably have a little bit more of their dealings with companies monitored. I don't see them being broken up. I don't see Internet Explorer being taken out of the operating system. Hmm. And I think I see them being a slap on the wrist of a fine and saying, you did bad. And uh, finally, Debbie Cook, you've uh, already mentioned that you don't think there's going to be a, uh, a breakup of Microsoft, which seems to be the general consensus. What do you think will happen? Um, well, I think I think it's going to probably. I think that uh, the Kelly and Daryl are both pretty on target, actually. I mean, I I I don't think a great deal is going to happen when the fallout all really does happen. I I think there will be some very strong pressure to unbundle the browser, and I don't know whether they'll succeed with that, but I think that there will be some really, really strong pressure to do that. Um, and and um, beyond that, and some fines and some things, um, some kind of monitoring, and, and so, I don't really think things are going to be that different. It would be very, very easy for Microsoft to set itself up corporately differently if it needed to do so, and then just continue on as it does. Our guests for this segment have been Debbie Cook, Daryl Shandro, and Kelly Ford. If
If you'd like to keep up to date with what's happening on ACB Radio, join our announcements list. You'll receive messages from ACB Radio staff about feature programs, scheduled outages, and website editions. To join this announcements-only email list, send a blank email to acbradio-announce-subscribe at egroups.com. That's acbradio-announce-subscribe at egroups.com. Stay in touch with ACB Radio, the station that's out of sight. Hello, everybody. I'm the Snowman, inviting you to join me for my wild and wacky talk show called the Snowman Radio Broadcast. We get way off the beaten path, and I'll bet it's your kind of show. It's coming up soon, so stay tuned, and thanks for listening to ACB Radio. You're with ACB Radio Mainstream. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and this is our weekly look at technology main menu. Greetings. My name is Scott Rutkowski from Australia, and I'm very pleased that Jonathan Mosen has asked me to do a software review each week for the main menu show on acbradio.org. This week won't be a software review. It'll actually be a hardware review, but it's well worth it. And for those people who are interested in sort of new gadgets to play with on their computers and things like that, I think you'll be very interested in this particular review. Each week the review will go for about five minutes thereabouts. Uh, It'll go longer if necessary. This week I've decided to do a review on the Logitech Cordless Internet Keyboard. A fine piece of hardware for any computer system, this keyboard. I'll just describe it first of all, and I'll tell you about some of the fine features that this keyboard has. I was actually put onto this keyboard by Jonathan, who got one for Christmas last year and swore by the keyboard, and uh, so I thought that I'd get one for myself, so I could actually walk around the house with some cordless headphones and uh, use a software synthesizer, like Eloquence or anything like that, and... I'll be, I can surf the net from anywhere. Now with this particular keyboard, basically it comprises two pieces. There's like a little transmitter or receiver which plugs into your keyboard port on the back of your PC and you get an adapter with it so you can either plug it into the older style XT and AT type keyboard connectors with the uh, five pin DINs or you get the you also get the smaller type DIN connector, so you can connect it up to the newer type keyboard sockets on the back of your PC. Basically all you do is you you put two AA alkaline batteries into the keyboard, and that's not too hard to do at all, and then you actually plug the transmitter or the receiver into the actual keyboard port, and you just turn on your PC, and you get a CD-ROM with the keyboard which has the Logitech software that came with the keyboard on it and that allows you to do some, some really interesting things and I'll describe those shortly. On the keyboard itself you've got the normal keyboard it's not the Microsoft style split keyboard that those people have come to like but it takes a bit of getting used to because you don't have the um, ergonomic design on like the old Microsoft keyboards have. The beauty about this keyboard is that you've got the normal keys. It's a normal size keyboard. No wires offered or anything like that. It's just the keyboard itself. You get a palm rest which clips onto the front of the keyboard 
and that just slots into two little slots on the front and that sort of makes typing easier. You've got the normal typewriter keys, the Windows key, the two Windows keys, the logo key, those sorts of things. And above all of the function keys, you've got a row of buttons. And they're rubber buttons, and they're different to all the other keys on the keyboard, so you can tell them apart from everything. The very left-hand button on the keyboard is called the sleep key. And what that does, instead of going into the start menu and choosing shutdown, which will bring up your choices of restart the computer, shutdown, those sorts of things, it actually brings that menu up with this one key press. Really nice feature that. Use it all the time, and it really does work well. The key just to the right, a fair bit to the right actually, is called the mute key. And what you can do is actually, it actually mutes the sound from your sound card. So you don't have to go into your application and try and find the mute function that's there for you. You just press it. And that depends whether the application itself does support the mute facility or not, which is quite a nice feature to have. Then you've got your volume down and volume up keys, and they adjust the volume. Then you've also got, you've got your, I think it's play, stop, back and forward keys and they work with Winamp I think some of them work in Real Player 7 and the beauty is you can either press B in Winamp to go to your next track or Z for the previous track or you can use these little buttons the skip and uh, sorry the back and forward buttons on the keyboard to actually go forward and back and you've got a stop and a play key and I think the play key also acts as a pause key as well that's a really valuable function to have on the keyboard, so you don't have to come back and try and find the stop control, whatever. You've also got, over on the right-hand corner of the keyboard, you've also got some. You've got four programmable keys. And what you can do with them, the top of the... There's four keys, there's two in each row. The top left of these keys is called the mail key. The, all these keys can be redefined through the... Logitech software which is quite easy to use. Uh, the beauty about it is you just press one key and it'll launch your mail application like Outlook Express or Calypso, whatever email client you happen to use. I've got mine set up to launch Calypso so you just press it once and it just brings Calypso up straight away. Really really nice, you don't have to press your hotkey like alt Control p or alt Control m whatever your mail hotkey happens to be. Just to the right, you've got a key called the Go Key. What that does, it'll you can actually launch a website from this key. So you can go to your favorite web page. So instead of setting it up to be the first page in Internet Explorer or Netscape, it'll just come up straight away for you, which is quite good. Under that, you've got the Search Key. And that can be set up to go to another website or a search engine, whatever you'd like it to go to. It can do that for you. And the other key is the... Um, forgotten the name of the key for the moment, but it's very similar to the other two keys described earlier. Now, with all of these particular keys, you can launch applications, and you can also launch uh, menus, which I haven't quite played with yet. But it is quite good, because I've got my... One of the keys I've got set to launch Winamp, 
so I don't have to go into the programs menu off the start menu and go looking through the list of programs for Winamp I can just press the key and it'll launch it for me straight away another key I've got set up for FireTalk which is a phone program which we'll be talking about in a later review it, it works the same way you just press the key and it'll actually launch that program for you overall this keyboard I'll give it 10 out of 10 it's a great keyboard the software that comes with the keyboard is very speech friendly it uses standard Windows controls works with Windows and JFW the only thing you have to do with JFW is you need to turn on standard keyboard processing which is under the configuration uh, menu or the configuration manager under the keyboard options in the settings menu once you turn this on the keyboard will act as normal if you don't actually turn on that particular function your insert key on your keyboard will act like it's always being pressed and it's not too good when you want to use it with other combinations of keys so once you turn that function on the standard keyboard processing the keyboard will perform as any keyboard should just some final comments on the keyboard I think from memory in the US they go for about $69 or $89 or something of that nature I can't quite remember the exact price I paid $130 here in Australia for the keyboard it comes in a rather large box easy to set up and you get the two AA batteries with the keyboard the actual time on the battery life depends on how often you use your keyboard and there is a feature in the software that comes with the keyboard to tell you how the battery life is going at the moment uh, at the moment mine is saying that it's good which means that it's um, probably more than half full they recommend they actually say in the actual manual that the keyboard battery should go for about five months or so but uh, I use mine all the time so it may actually go for less time we'll have to find out when the battery goes flat the only time that the battery does get used is when you actually use the keyboard itself and when it's transmitting back to the receiver and then that's transmitting back to your computer the actual receiver itself doesn't run on any batteries it gets its power from the actual keyboard port from your computer I recommend this keyboard to anyone who's serious about uh, the using the internet and who wants to actually have some cordless headphones which I'll be reviewing in another show and so yeah grab one of these keyboards if you're interested and I think you'll be very pleased with it I was very pleased setting it up on the first night and just lying in bed with the cordless headphones and I could surf the net do everything that I could do sitting in front of my computer thanks for listening to this review if anybody wants to um, ask any questions they can send email to the PC audio list and I'll be happy to answer any questions on the keyboard there for them thanks again for listening to this review we'll be back next week with another fine review on acbradio.org
ACV Radio offers an email list that gives the same information as our popular announcements list, but in addition, it allows you to interact with other ACB Radio listeners, discuss the programming and share ideas with the ACB Radio listeners and staff. To join the ACB Radio discussion list, send a blank email to acbradio-friends-subscribe at egroups.com. That's acbradio-friends-subscribe at egroups.com. Keep in touch with ACB Radio, the station that's out of sight. There's much more to come on ACB Radio, including an extended interview with Stephen Baum of Lynn Upton Houseby about Kurzweil 1000 version 5.0, and we also take a look at their RealSpeak software speech synthesizer. A lot of people think a lot of the synthesizer, so stay tuned and see what you think. We'll also be hearing from DJC and Joy Tilton looking at a talking microwave oven. And we'll be taking a satirical look at the trials and tribulations of beta testing. Right now, though, the first in what will be a regular series of looks at Linux. Now, it's interesting that despite the increasing usability by blind and vision-impaired people of the GUI, there seems to be a resurgence of interest in command-line interfaces. Mind you, this is also the case in the sighted community as well. Linux is becoming very, very fashionable. And for those of you who want to go back to a command line, or perhaps stay with a command line, uh, we will be telling you in this series all about Linux and uh, how to make it go. Here's the first in our series of programs on the subject from Matt Campbell. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Learning Linux with Matt Campbell. Over the coming weeks, I'll be providing tips, tricks, and tutorials for setting up and using Linux without sight. But first, I thought I'd give an introduction to Linux for those who know little or nothing about it. First of all, what is Linux? It's a computer operating system, as DOS and Windows are operating systems. Linux is based on Unix which you're probably familiar with if you've ever used an internet, an internet service provider through a shell account. Linux has several advantages over Windows, which have nothing to do with blindness. Linux is much more reliable than Windows. It rarely crashes and is immune to most viruses. Linux is also more efficient with your computer's processor, memory, and other resources. One result of this is that Linux is especially useful on older hardware. For example, you can run a modern Linux operating system on a 486 PC without having to wait half a minute for your applications to load. Linux also gives you a choice with everything. For example, it provides both a graphical and text-based user interface. Linux is free or inexpensive. You can download it from the internet for free, or you can get it on CD-ROM for 3 to 5 US dollars. There are also more expensive commercial Linux distributions, which include printed documentation and technical support from the vendor. You can also get good technical support for free from Linux users and even developers over the internet. You can get it through email, either one-on-one -on -one or on a mailing list, or through various internet chat systems, such as Internet Relay Chat and the Speak Freely Internet Phone Program. Finally, Linux is open source software. This means that any programmer with sufficient skill can examine and change the source code which the Linux programmers use to write the operating system. So, any programmer with enough skill can find and fix problems quickly before they have disastrous consequences, or make improvements to the software and send them back to the original developers. Linux has special advantages for blind people, 
Some blind people strongly prefer a text-based interface over a graphical interface. Linux is a good choice for them because it's a modern operating system which provides a text interface. In addition, the access technology under Linux for blind people is free. I'll get back to that shortly. These two facts, as well as the fact that Linux runs well on older hardware, make it a good choice for blind people who use DOS and are unable or unwilling to upgrade to Windows. All of this is great, but Linux also has its disadvantages. Some hardware devices are poorly supported or not supported at all under Linux. For example, some devices, such as wind modems, can't be supported under Linux because their manufacturers won't release documentation about how the devices work. Also, some, count, some sound cards, sorry, such as the ESS Solo 1 used in some laptops, are poorly supported under Linux, and some speech synthesizers aren't yet supported, but this is changing as more drivers are written. There are also some applications which are currently only available under Windows, including optical character recognition software like Arkenstone's OpenBook, the Windows Media Player, and some games. Finally, there's not yet a good screen access program for the X Windows system, which is the graphical user interface in Linux. So, for example, if you're a blind person using Linux, you can't yet, yet use the Netscape web browser, meaning that you can't use web pages which rely on Java or JavaScript. You also won't be able to access graphical word processors and office suites like what you may be used to under Windows, and access to RealPlayer is limited, though I'm working on a fix for this problem. Let's take a look at the access technology that's available for Linux. One program which will give you access to Linux is EmacSpeak, which is not a screen reader, but a speech interface for Emacs. Emacs is a text editor from which you can do anything. Unlike screen readers, Emacs Speak doesn't speak the visually laid out screen display, but the original information from which that display came. For more information about Emacs Speak, check out its website at emacspeak, E-M-A-C-S-P-E-A-K, dot sourceforge, dot net. Secondly, BRLTTY gives you access to Linux through a braille display. For more information about that, check out the website at cam.org slash tilde nico slash brltty. Finally, SpeakUp is a screen reader for Linux, which is built into the operating system itself. This means that SpeakUp will provide speech from the time you start up to the time you shut down. You can even install Linux with speech without sighted assistance. For more information about SpeakUp, check out its website at linux-speakup.org. Linux comes in various distributions, which are packaged in different ways. One is Debian, a non-commercial Linux distribution which provides a wide variety of software ready to install and run. One of the most important features of Debian is DPKG, the Debian Package Manager which provides a consistent way of installing, removing, and otherwise working with software packages under Linux. For more information about Debian, check out its website at Debian, 
debian.org. Another popular Linux distribution is Red Hat, which is probably the leading commercial distribution of Linux. It aims to be easy to install and use, at least for sighted people who have access to the graphical interface. One of Red Hat's main selling points is RPM, the Red Hat Package Manager, which has similar features to those found in DPKG. For more information about Red Hat, check out the website at redhat.com. Finally, Slackware was one of the first Linux distributions to be created. Its package management system is limited in that you currently can't easily upgrade the whole system. However, Slackware has especially speech-friendly installation and configuration tools. There is a special version of, Zips, of Slackware called ZipSlack, which you can install with little difficulty on an existing DOS or Windows system. Recently, I made a special version of ZipSlack called ZipSpeak, which includes the SpeakUp screen reader ready, ready to use. Um, for more information about Slackware, check out its website at slackware.com. Now that you've heard some introductory information about Linux, you may want to know where you can go to find out more and to get help. For general Linux documentation, check out the website of the Linux Documentation Project at linuxdoc.org. There's also a mailing list specifically for new blind users of Linux and for blind people who are considering Linux and want to know more. It's called Linux Newbie, and you can join it by sending a blank email to blinux, B-L-I-N-U-X, dash newbie, N-E-W-B-I-E, dash subscribe, at egroups.com. Well, that's all I have for now. If you have any questions or comments about what you've just heard, you can email me at mattcamp, M-A-T-T-C-A-M-P, at crosswinds, C-R-O-S-S-W-I-N-D-S, dot net. Next week, I plan to explain and demonstrate the installation of ZipSpeak. Until then, goodbye, and have a good week. ACB Radio is unique. It's the only internet radio station run by the blind for the blind, and we want you to get involved. Already there are blindness organizations from around the world and individuals who are blind or visually impaired doing programs on ACB Radio. Now, the programs don't have to be blindness-related. If you're a blind person and you want to put a talk show or a music program together, we're interested in hearing from you too. How about those of you who belong to computer clubs? Why not share your demonstrations and your tutorials with us? The possibilities are endless and we want to discuss them. Send an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. This is our place, the place for blind and visually impaired people to hear themselves, to have their ideals and their challenges reflected. Be a part of it. ACB Radio, it's your station and it's out of sight. ACB Believe it or not, Kurzweil 1000, a relatively new OCR package for the blind, is already up to version 5.0. It's just been released. We've got Stephen Baum on the line now. He is from the uh, education division of Learnout and Houseby that release Kurzweil 1000. Stephen, you really have been putting out these releases at a prolific rate. We have been. Um, and exactly how 
that will continue is, is a bit to be undecided right is a bit undecided right now. There are a number of other things going on here, and the amount of of uh, well, it, we do we do new releases basically when we when we have ideas that we really want to get into the product, um, and it's unclear how many new releases we will have at what rate in the future. But we'll we probably will continue to do them on a fairly good clip. Version 4.5 happened to be a bigger release than I expected it to be. There was a lot in it. And, uh, yeah, we, nonetheless, we didn't have much time to sit back and pause and think about it for version 5. So, what's, so yes. yeah, what kind of things are in version uh, 5 that are new? We should perhaps take a, take a bit of a feature tour of some of the new options that you have. Sure, by all means. Um, the first one, and it's really pretty important for us, is a new speech engine. Uh, this is a speech engine developed by our parent company, Learnout and Houseby, and it's called RealSpeak. And it's uh, it's very different from most speech engines that are on the market. It's made by recording a human speaker, presumably one whose whose voice you like, and recording them um, saying things following a script for days and days and days. Uh, the results of that recording are digitized, normalized, um, tagged, and a huge database is extracted from them. And the database contains not just phonemes, which is sort of the basic element of speech, um, but also syllables, entire words, and in some respects, entire phrases. Um, the speech engine itself then concatenates those things on the fly and analyzes prosody and various other things like that and ends up producing a speech which um, sounds somewhat more natural than pretty much anything else that's available on the market. We've got some rave reviews on this speech from people who've heard it over the web and now it's starting to get into people's hands. Um, you've been in this industry for a long time. Are you able to give a kind of a, as independent as we can expect, an assessment of, of its functionality and when you would use it and when you might use something else? Oh, sure. I'm if nothing if not painfully honest. Um, first off, we'll speak sounds great and is an excellent voice if to to sort of sit back and listen to a book with it's very good to listen to over a long period of time it tends not to exhaust people's attention it tends to be very easy to listen to it is however a very expensive speech engine in that it's doing an awful lot of things and a consequence of that is is, is it is not terribly responsive if you're trying to use it to echo keystrokes. So, for example, I tend not to use it as the system voice. I use it only as the reading voice. And for the system voice, I'll use any other speech engine I might happen to have lying around. Um, and I, I think that's generally an appropriate decision. There's also the fact that, that those of us who have used speech for years are very likely to like what we have been using rather than this and wonder what all the fuss is about. People become um, habituated to a particular voice pretty quickly and nothing else sounds as good. There's sort of one other funny psychological thing that I've noticed happens now and then, which is this voice sounds enough like a human being that sometimes you find yourself getting annoyed with it for not understanding what it's talking about.
it is quite a, a system hog, this thing, isn't it? You need a, a reasonably powerful machine to make it go. Right. You should have a 350 megahertz Pentium. Um, the minimum requirement is 64 megabytes of memory. So, yes, it uses a lot of system resources while it is running. One of the things that interested me was a comment that uh, Dr. Kurzweil made in his uh, comments um, that were published in the Brown Monitor in January, which was that eventually we would be able to use this technology to um, create our own speech synthesizer from either our own voice or someone's that we, we liked. How far away are we from that? Um, a few years, I would suspect. Basically, the only thing that really prevents doing that is the huge number of samples that are needed, the fact that you need a human being to then tag all those samples, and then simply the processing power to churn that stuff out. That processing power now requires a, a high-powered computer that will run for several days. Um, the way processing power decreases, that will get better. The tagging part will be eliminated largely by um, very improved high-quality speech recognition. And so, yes, we expect that we'll be able to get there. We're certainly not there now. It takes a fair amount of work to make one of these voices. I should point out that, uh, or add that in the uh, UK, there are at least, I think, two virtual newscasters that are under development. Uh, one is named Anna Nova, I don't recall the other. Both of them use RealSpeak technology, but with a different voice. So there are other voices coming eventually. So a virtual newscaster is a kind of thing where you will you will go to the web and, and this thing will, will what, read the news to you over the, over the web? Yeah, and uh, there's someone in the background who determines what emotion should be used when when each, each uh, individual article is read. But other than that, it's using, um, you know, completely machine-oriented synthetic speech, and it's RealSpeak that they're using. How customizable does RealSpeak in terms of its ability to speed right up for those who are power users, uh, and also in terms of pitch adjustment? Um, speed is highly customizable. It goes from, I believe, 50 words per minute to uh, 600 words per minute. And I find... I find it's not that bad at 400, for example. Um, I, I couldn't vouch that I understand every word at 400, but I understand enough to to comfortably read. Uh, on the other hand, there's no speech adjustment at all. Okay. I take it from what you've been saying about the, because of the technology involved, that um, although there may be screen readers out there that will let you use RealSpeak, such as those that support the uh, Microsoft Speech API directly, it may not be necessarily suitable for screen reading tasks because of the, the delay factor involved between key presses and when you get feedback. Yeah, it depends what the alternatives are. Uh, I mean, there there may be circumstances where people would prefer to use this as a screen reader, um, even though there are responsiveness issues. Um, I also think there are clever ways people could work to get around the responsiveness issues, some of which I'm thinking about now, which basically would involve caching um, WAV files for, for all the letters of the alphabet, for example. Something like that would, would make the system goal would go a long way towards making it more responsive. 
Okay, well, I have a copy of the real speak speech here on the computer, so what we'll do is we'll put it through its paces just a little bit. Here is uh, the speech at just under 200 words a minute. I would say this is a fairly moderate pace, and this is what it sounds like. Hello there. My name is Jennifer, and I'm the voice of the real speak speech synthesizer from Learn Out and Hawspeed. As you can hear, my speech is very clear, and as Stephen had just told you, that's because I'm a real person, with lots of little phrases and phonemes recorded by me and then stored inside your computer. Now, here's what it sounds like when I ask a question. So what do you think of the new app radio? I'd also just like to conclude by exclaiming that I personally think the main menu show is great. Especially since they decided to put me on their first show. Well, that's all from me. Bye for now. Now I'm going to crank up that speech a bit to 405 words a minute and see how it sounds at that speed. Hello there. My name is Jennifer, and I'm the voice of the Real Speak Speech Synthesizer from Learn Out and Hawspeed. As you can hear, my speech is very clear, and as Stephen had just told you, that's because I'm a real person, with lots of little phrases and phonemes recorded by me and then stored inside your computer. Now, here's what it sounds like when I ask a question. So what do you think of the new app radio? I'd also just like to conclude by exclaiming that I personally think the main menu show is great. Especially since they decided to put me on their first show. Well, that's all for me. And just how fast can it go? Well, let's put the throttle right down to 600 words a minute and have a listen. Hello there. My name is Jennifer, and I'm the voice of the Real Speak Speech Synthesizer from Learn Out and Hawthie. As you can hear, my speech is very clear, and as Stephen had just told you, that's because I'm a real person with lots of little phrases and phonemes recorded by me and then stored inside your computer. Now, here's what it sounds like when I ask a question. So what do you think of the new app radio? I'd also just like to conclude by explaining that I personally think the main menu show is right. Especially since they decided to put me on their first show. Well, that's all for me. Bye for now. And you're still bundling Flex Talk with the current release of uh, Kurzweil 1000? Absolutely. Um, we still clearly need other synthesizers with product, partly for people who don't have a fast machine and partly for people who want multiple voices. So, yes, there is uh, FlexTalk is still with the product. Um, DeckTalk can be purchased in the DeckTalk edition um, once we get the negotiations out of the way, which is another story. And um, I should also mention that both versions of the product include TTS 3000, which is another suite of Learnout and Houseby voices. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the other features that are in um, version 5.0 because there are a number of, of enhancements. I guess the next big thing would be changes in, in uh, recognition engines. Right. We're always looking out there for, for what's new, and the, the two OCR engines that we include in the product and have included since version 4.5 um, both companies have come out with new releases. The Fine Engine um, release is relatively minor. It adds uh, a handful of new languages. It fixes some known problems so that there were, for example, certain pages that could not be recognized before that recognize quite, quite nicely now. But it's not a, a terribly major release. On the other hand, the Expervision RTK release the other, which is the other OCR engine we have, is really a significant release. It reduces the number of errors on average by about uh, 20 to 30 percent, and uh, that's dramatic. That's that's rather significant. The RTK remains about the fastest OCR engine on the market, and so with it also having improved accuracy, it can be a pretty good choice. Having said that, Fine Engine is by our own benchmarks right now, the most accurate engine on the market. How significant a difference is there? Is it something that the average user would, uh, something that the average user would be quite conscious of? I think the answer is certainly yes for the difference between Fine Engine and 
um, and RTK, certainly customers will use one and swear by it, and others, some others may use the other and swear by it. It does, to a certain extent, depend upon the material that you scan. Um, things like faxes, which tend to be poor quality, Fine Engine does tend to do a superior job on. On the other hand, certain fonts, re relatively uncommon fonts, that are, um, well, for example, bold sans serif fonts that I, I've seen mainly in Eastern European material, actually recognize better with uh, the RTK. So it's somewhat font dependent as well. But 20% of errors per page, which is the amount of improvement between the old RTK release and the new one, is definitely significant and noticeable. Depends on the material, though. And again, for those using slower systems, uh, it would be advisable to go with the uh, the RTK engine if CPU uh, issues are, uh, are at the forefront. Certainly. The, the speed differences between those two engines are pretty substantial. Um, RTK is very fast. Well, should we take a look at some of the user interface changes that we have in, in 5.0 and, and obviously some of the, the functionality changes that are at the user interface level? Okay. Uh, certainly probably one of the, the biggest news is table recognition. And uh, actually, let me see if I have a document here that I can, I can run and you can just listen to this for a moment. Um, let me... I've got a document up which actually is our list of scanners. And this is a page that I have in fact scanned. And it is a table. It's a table that indicates what scanners we have, what products they run on, and um, you know comments regarding those scanners. And we'll see how the uh, Kurzweil 1000 reads this particular page. We are scanners that we have tested in-house Kurzweil SO00 and 3000. Start of table. Canon Cando Scan SB320B. Kurzweil 1000. X. Kurzweil 3000. X. 95. X. 98. X. N T. X. Type of connection. Parallel. Comments. Very slow. Small slash platen 8.5 XLL. Canon Cando Scan SB 620P. Earth while 1000. X. Earth while 3000. X. 95. X. 98. X. N T. Type of connection. Parallel. Common. Very slow. Small slash platen 8.5 XLL. So let me describe what we just heard a little bit. You may have noticed there were two voices. One is my current reading voice, one the message voice. The message voice is announcing the table header, and uh, whereas the reading voice is being used to actually read the contents of each cell in a table. And so we read um, Kurzweil 1000X. The X is simply what's in that table. Basically, it just has an X when the scanner is supported, a blank when the scanner is not supported. So, for example, if I have 95, I could be positioned at a particular spot in the table, and it will say X. But, of course, without some smarts, it's rather difficult to figure out what X means, you know, what, what scanner is it referring to, for example. 
you can go up and down a column of cells and listen to X's, and you can hit one particular key, it is uh, Shift F7, and that will announce what the side heading and top heading is for that particular table cell. So again, if I do that, I'm going to move down a table a little bit, and then I'll hit Shift F7. Anyway, that um, I was fumbling with the phone and the keyboard at the same time, so I may not have come over too well. But basically, I went down the row. It said, and when I hit Shift F7, it reported Epson 1200U 98. In other words, I'm looking at does the Epson 1200U does it work under Windows 98? And the response would be X or blank, depending upon whether it did. So table recognition gives you, or table identification gives you a way of navigating through tables and hopefully making some sense of out of them. It is not a perfect feature in that it has, um, it's dependent upon the ability of the OCR itself to correctly identify a table. And OCR is in that, as in all other things, um, imperfect. When it works well, it works really well. When it doesn't work well, it can actually be rather annoying, and so there's a way to turn this feature off if you don't like it. Nonetheless, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, an honest first stab at actually making sense out of tables in a reading machine, which is not something that's been done before. And users should be aware when they get version 5 that it is actually disabled by default. You have to go in there and enable it. It is. It's disabled by default because there are certain pathological cases where the system will hang when it attempts to re read a table that, uh, and when table recognition is, is enabled. It was not a bug that we could fix because it wasn't actually in our code. It was in code we get from other sources. And so, unfortunately, we shipped with the feature disabled. In general, you'll find it works. It's fairly rare to run into a problem, but there are problems. And there will be a patch. Actually, there'll probably be a patch within, uh, say, within a month that fixes that particular problem. That went down particularly well at CSUN, I know, during the uh, Dueling Scanners uh, forum. There was a lot of comment about K1000's ability to deal with tables now. Yeah, it, it can demo well, and it can work very well, too. I mean, it can be a really useful feature. I don't personally want to oversell it, because there are certainly a number of times where you will find something that you think should read well as a table, and it may not. Um, when it works well, it's very, very good. And I hope to make it better over time. And what else can we find in 5.0? Okay, there are navigation and editing changes. Um, these are, are, in many respects, relatively modest, but we have had customers who, from the beginning when we first added editing in version 2.0, have said again and again that this is very nice, but we wish you would follow the standards. So now, Control Home will take you to the beginning of the document, Control N to the end of the document. Since we're still very page-oriented, that meant we wanted um, something to get you to the top and bottom of the page, and there's no 
real standard there. So we use shift page up to go to the top of a page, shift page down to go to the bottom of a page. We also added something at uh, a user's request who wanted control delete to delete the word to the right, control backspace to delete the word to the left, which turns out to be standard in Microsoft Word, but I had never known about it myself, and I do find it a very useful thing. Uh, there's also a select all, which we did not have before. So you can finally say control A and select the entire document. Once you select it, there's a limited number of things we let you do uh, that actually will work with that selection. You can cut, copy, and paste in standard manners, but you can't, for example, type a word and have that word replace the entire document. But in general, control A works reasonably well in the circumstances where you would actually want to use it. Something else we did at a customer's request was we changed the automatic bookmark, the one that uh, takes you to a particular position when you open a document that you've been reading before. And now that bookmark will take you to the beginning of the sentence you were last reading when you closed the document, before it took you to the start of a page that you were reading. Um, that, again, was a simple thing to do. It was a user request, and uh, so we put it in. Kurzweil 1000 is almost at the point where you know, it has a thesaurus, it has a spell checker. You could pretty much use it for, for basic uh, word processing, no trouble at all. You could, and there's been some user interface changes in the thesaurus such that you can now use it to fairly readily find a different word for a word in a document and then replace the word in the document. So that's a, a new feature borrowed in part from the way certain versions of WordPerfect do that. So um, that's in there as well. Something that's useful, at least in the United States, I'm not entirely sure it's useful outside of the United States, is that if we, if you open a file whose extension is .brl, .brf, or .bfm, we will assume it is a grade 2 Braille file and we'll convert it. Um, so that you can read the grade 2 Braille file uh, appropriately. So there's a built-in reverse Braille translation. Well, particularly in the U.S., unfortunately, Web Braille isn't available to anyone outside the U.S., but with the proliferation of those sorts of books uh, on the net these days from sources like Web Braille, you can now use your Cursor 1000 to just sit back and have those read to you if you want to. You can. That was, was certainly the idea. And I'd like to... Uh, suggest to people that that doesn't mean if they get a copyrighted Braille document off the web that they can convert it to ASCII and distribute it to all their friends. Um, that, in fact, would would um, violate U.S. copyright law and is not the way to go. But it does make it so that people who are speech users rather than Braille users um, can get access to, to Braille documents that might be available. Let's see, correction files. Um, most people, I hope, know what a corrections file is. It's essentially a facility that allows you a batch search and replace of any number of common mistakes in a document. And there are ways in which you can add to corrections and edit corrections and, of course, use corrections. But in past releases of the product, there's only been one corrections file. Now you can create new corrections files and you can select which file to be used in different contexts. This makes uh, a great deal of sense if you scan some documents that are in English and others that are, say, in Spanish, 
because certainly you would want different corrections to apply to Spanish than to English. So that's the, the principal reason for that one. Presumably there may be a need for a different corrections file for each scanner engine because each one has its quirks. That's possible. Um, I haven't really investigated that, but I imagine that, that some customers will find that to be true. Um, it is kind of handy. The way to get into this, by the way, it's in the tools menu. There's a new item called select corrections file, and uh, that will bring up a small dialog box where you can specify a corrections file, or um, it's a combo box, so you can type in a new name, you can select a name from the list. There are some people, incidentally, who've put some pretty amazing corrections files together. Um, are they included on the CD at all still? Um, they are. There's in the extras directory, there is coreutil.zip. Uh, Inside that is a corrections file, although I believe a Come to think of it, actually, the, that particular corrections file, if you have no corrections file already, you will automatically have that when you install the product. So that one comes pretty much for free. One of the notions of CoreUtil, which gives you a, a way of converting back and forth between corrections files, which are binary, and the an ASCII file that is somewhat easier to distribute and edit, was that people could make corrections files that they found useful and then email them to friends. Um, I don't know that many people do that, but that was sort of the concept of, uh, of CoreUtil. Let's see. Uh, here's kind of an odd one, uh, reading duration. This is in the reading settings dialog. It's a new feature. And it allows you to specify in minutes how long you want the system to read in one continuous reading utterance. So the intent here primarily is for people who might be recording something that the Kurzweil 1000 is reading on a tape recorder. And uh, the tape has a particular maximum length, let's say 45 minutes. And so you would specify, let's say, 44 minutes to be on the safe side in this, and then let it start reading. Um, you could then go away and do something else. When you came back, your tape, of course, would be exhausted. Um, and the Kurzweil 1000 would have stopped reading at the end of a paragraph at the end of 44 minutes. You would then flip the tape over, press the read key, and continue. Um, so that's the primary reason for that. And again, it was a feature that was asked for by, by several customers. Let's see, something else that is new and worth discussing a little bit is the file dialog enhancements. And... Um, I'm sure, Jonathan, you remember that basically every release we've changed the file dialog, and sometimes quite a bit. Yes, it's a bit of a hot topic, isn't it? It's it's one of those issues where you know, some people swear by the um, Internet Explorer, sorry, the Windows Explorer interface, and then there are others who swear at it. And I guess uh, you are caught in the middle somewhere there. I am. I, I mean, some of the things people have complained about my interface were things I deliberately did because I found um, Windows Explorer to be slightly, somewhat confusing. Basically, it is a Windows Explorer user interface, but there is um, one really fundamental way in which it's quite different, and maybe I should explain that way since I don't think I ever have in publicly, which is that in the folder tree, which 
the first control in a file dialog. That is very much like a Windows Explorer folder tree, except for, I guess, really two important things. One, it does not contain files. It only contains folders, whereas Windows Explorer will contain both, if you, in general. And a second is that um, I use the arrow keys somewhat differently. Up arrow, for example, will get you to the next folder in the current list of folders, current with the same parent folder, but it will not get you to the parent folder. Only left arrow will do that. Um, in the same way, down arrow will not get you to the parent folder or the next folder of, of, that, of the parent hierarchy. It will only get you to the next folder in the current hierarchy. And again, left arrow is the only thing that takes you up hierarchy. Right arrow is the only thing that takes you down hierarchy. Um, that's a difference, and I do find people now and then who hit up arrow repeatedly, it beeps at them, and then we get phone calls saying that there's no way to get out of the um, My Documents hierarchy or the yeah, My Documents Kurzweil Educational Systems hierarchy. Um, I guess never realizing that the left arrow would be the, the way to do that, left arrow or uh, backspace. So that's really, in many respects, the principal difference. One thing I've done in this release is to add some more features that are um, even more, make it even more Windows Explorer-like in some respects. The main ones being that certain shortcuts now work in any of the file dialogs. And the file dialogs are the dialogs that are brought up with file open, file save as, file delete, file utilities, folder change, and folder delete. Um, control A will select all files in a file list. Control X will cut selected files from the file list or a selected folder in the folder tree. You have to use Control V, paste, to finish that, and you always have to be pointing at a folder when you do Control V. Control C, in the same way, will copy selected files in the file list or a selected folder in the folder tree. And again, you use it with Control V. And you can use Delete to delete selected files from the file list or a folder in the folder tree. Um, that, of course, requires a confirmation. Another thing that's a little different, although not a big deal, is there are shortcuts to get from one control to another in the file dialogs. And the um, mnemonics for these shortcuts come from Windows Explorer file open. The Alt-I will take you to a folder tree, and the signal there is, is uh, in, I think, is what's the important word in that context. Alt-N to the file name text box. Alt-T to the format list when you're in the Save As dialog. So hopefully you've so made everybody happy now because uh, you've got that uh, Explorer-like functionality while retaining the original interface. That's the theory, and I'm sure it won't make everyone happy because I'm sure there'll be something else that uh, I will have to do later. There are a number of, of very minor bug fixes in the file dialogues and elsewhere that really I won't get into other than to say that if you were surprised by the way something worked in the past, you might be pleasantly surprised this time around. There are things that um, are relatively minor user interface su surprises that, that uh, have been fixed in this release. <laughs> okay. Have we got something anything else to, to talk about in this uh, amazing U5.0? Oh, sure. Um, sort order. 
again, this is in the file dialogs, there is a new list box, and it is called uh, sort or sort by, and it allows you to control the sort order in the file list. Um, until now, the file dialogs, the files in those lists, were always listed in alphabetical order by file name. Now you can choose alpha that as a sort option, but there is also descending as well as ascending. And you can sort by name, by modification date, by extension, and by file size. And uh, to do this, the easiest way, frankly, is to use Control-S when you are in the file list. Um, because, of course, that's the list you want to sort, so you probably want to stay there. And just use Control-S to change the sort order. The sort order is a um, setting, and it will be saved if you save settings. So you can, you know, pick a sort order that you prefer and keep it that way if you want to. Um, and just to, to demonstrate that we, we're not uh, kidding when we say we're, can, you can sort by size, you can finally find out what the size of the file is within the product. There is a file properties dialog box. You can get to it by being in a file list in a file utility in a file dialog and pressing a question mark. That will bring up another dialog, which is the file properties dialog. That dialog contains the usual suspects, the DOS file name, the folder that one is with, one is in, the modification date, and the file size. Um, it also has whether or not the file is read-only, and if it is a file with an extension of .kes, it has a file description, so you can enter a description in that dialog and... Um, the description is simply a variable length freeform field that contains whatever you happen to want uh, want in that uh, want in there. And let's see, I'm checking myself here. Oh, you can open multiple files simultaneously. So I'm going to ask for that. Um, where that's really useful is if you have a folder full of image files that you would like to have recognized and kept as one file. You can select the image files and um, in a file open dialog. And what we will do is open each image file, recognize its contents, and pour them into a text, a you know standard file, more or less as though as if you had scanned it. So it's kind of like the old batch scanning uh, feature of of the olden days. Well, and the batch scanning feature is still in there in a more automated fashion. But this one becomes useful if those image files you have happen to been delivered to you from some other mechanism besides batch scanning. Right. So it's kind of more uh, configurable in terms of the um, the file naming conventions, that kind of thing. That's right. Mm. The file launch facility has gotten somewhat more powerful, and here the power is simply that now you can specify that if you want to pass a document to a particular application you are launching, you can also um, enforce that that document be of a particular format. And if it is not, the Curzol 1000 will automatically convert it to that format before launching the application. Um, file launch facility, I think, is, is an underused feature of the product, but is actually quite handy. And, it allows you to do things like launch into Duxbury for um, high-quality Braille conversion and formatting uh, would be one example of the use of the file launch feature.
How can people who would like to explore this further uh, get a demo of the product? There are a couple ways of getting a demo. Um, there is a, um, I believe there is a website address, and give me a moment, I can actually look that up. First off, I will give you the phone number here. Um, you can call at, for those people who are in the United States, you can call 800-894-5374 and ask for a demo of the Kurzweil 1000 from them. Uh, www.lhsl.com slash education is essentially the Kurzweil Educational System Group's homepage. And if I go to that page, I can uh, get to product information for the Kurzweil 1000. There is a spot where I can uh, begin to ask for a demo. And I'll give you the full address for the order form here for that, which is www.lhsl.com slash education slash products slash orderdemo.asp and that's orderdemo.asp is one word there's no spaces there uh, the demo will run for 30 days and after 30 days it will automatically remove itself from your computer um, if you install it again after that point it will simply not work and remove itself again so it's not too useful to reinstall. It will also run for, I believe it's an hour um, per session. When that hour is up, if you try to scan a page, it will tell you that the hour is, is over. You still will be able to save files at that point and exit and come into the product again and it will work. There's one other restriction, which is that the TTS 3000 voices that are normally shipped on the product are not shipped in the demo, and that's simply because we haven't protected them in any way. So if we were to get, put them in the demo, it would be the same as giving them away. Um, RealSpeak is in the demo and is protected, and uh, as is FlexPop. Do you have any information on how much uh, Kurzweil 1000 is, is selling for, for new users? For new users, it's $995 for the FlexTalk version. For the DeckTalk version, and keep in mind right now there is no 5.0 DeckTalk version. It will be once we um, finish negotiations with the people who sell DeckTalk. Um, that version is $200 more, so that's $1,195. So the FlexTalk version is $995 US. Now, people who have a DeckTalk that they um, bought from Hinter Joyce as part of JFW can use it as long as they keep JFW in memory, as I understand it, but those who bought DeckTalk through GW Micro can actually unload their window eyes completely and the DeckTalk works with Kurzweil 1000. That's, that's correct. And, uh, yeah, it works just fine with GW Micro. Um, it is a little harder to have it work with the version from JAWS, but it can be done. That's Stephen Baum from Learn Up and Houseby talking about Kurzweil 1000 version 5.0. <laughs> A special welcome to you if you've just joined us. This is ACB Radio Mainstream, one of three channels on the acbradio.org website. This is the main menu show. 
Here every week from 9 to 11 Eastern on a Sunday night, that's 1 to 3 hours GMT on Monday morning. We look at technology from a blindness perspective. I'm Jonathan Mosen. We're always interested in contributions from listeners. So if you have a piece of software that you'd like to review, or uh, maybe a piece of hardware, maybe you have an idea for uh, a main menu program, by all means get in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the show. The address is support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You can find ways to contact us on our website, of course, at www.acbradio.org. And we certainly appreciate you spreading the word about Main Menu, ACB Radio Mainstream, and indeed the other broadcast services that you can find on ACB Radio. Radio's main menu. This is DJC at calweb.com with news and views you can use. And very special greetings to you. This is Don Coco from Sacramento, California, and welcome to my part of the program on the main menu from ACB Radio. Today I'd like to interview Joy Tilton who is my neighbor here in Sacramento, California, and she owns a talking microwave oven. And this is uh, quite a unique product, and I thought this would be a good idea for a program today. So here's Joy to give us a demo of the talking microwave. Okay, on the main menu program today, I'm in the kitchen of my neighbor, Joy. Hi, Joy. How are you? Not too bad. Great, great. Now, you have a real unusual device. I mean, at least I think it's unusual because I'd be interested to find out via email maybe uh, how many people in our audience have talking microwave uh, ovens. And I would bet that not that many people have the talking one, and you happen to have one. Why don't you tell us something about this particular unit here? Well, uh, this is actually a uh, modified um, Gold Star uh, that was modified by a company... Uh, somewhere in England, I can't give you the actual place at the moment, uh, Cobalt uh, is the name of the company, and um, it's been s- distributed um, through a couple of places in the U.S. Um, for roughly $350. That's probably why a lot of people don't have this kind of microwave. <laughs> it's a little high in price, but uh, for what it for for what it does for the price of the microwave it works really good. Uh, I'll tell you that much. What is the wattage of it? Any idea? Um, I it's, it's an um at least eight hundred watts. Oh yeah, uh-huh. eight hundred watts. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, do you know? Now you bought this a couple of years ago, is that right? Yes. <laughs> and do you know if they're still making these? I mean, are they still available on the market? Or I'm seeing advertisements uh, for them in uh, some of the like um, Anmars Enterprise catalogs, and and I think Maxiage is still selling them. So they are still available for yeah. people who would be interested in this sort of thing. Right. Once they hear this interview, perhaps. Right. Okay. Well, it's a handsome-looking unit. I can tell you that. And I noticed that uh, looking at the different buttons here. It's got a whole bunch of uh, buttons, and the top one's a square, and then underneath they have a couple of bo- 
buttons that are sort of a, a what would you call that, oblong, cupula? Uh, those diamond ones on the bottom? Yeah, diamond shape. The, the three yeah. in the bottom are, are diamond shape. And the ones up on top, and they're, they're really big buttons, too. Uh, yes. <laughs> the microwave I have at home is just a flat panel, you know, and you have to find where to press it, you know, and this one is really nice. So why don't you, uh, why don't you give us a demo of it, how it all works? Okay. <clears throat> well, there's, there's actually one, two, three, four rows of buttons. Uh-huh. And um, uh, the top row is your uh, time and uh, timer. Um, 2.08 p.m. It's 2.08 p.m. over here. And you notice the um, nice English accent. It sounds like your average uh, English butler, you could say. Uh, and then we have um, to the right of the uh, time button, is the timer timer only uh, you can use that also to find out um, how much time is remaining on the food you're cooking or you can use it for your timer uh, it goes up to 59 uh, see, fi- 59 minutes and 59 seconds on this particular timer then we have um, cancel okay I just canceled it and then we have um, about four buttons here. Uh, these have to do with programming. Uh, the first button on the left is, um... Medium, high power, medium power, medium, low power, low power, high power. That's your power button. And then you can, uh... Defrost meat, defrost poultry, defrost fish, defrost fruit, defrost bread, defrost meat. Okay. So you have uh, uh, your defrost settings, and you have uh, cook settings. Cook meat, cook meat, medium. Cook meat, low. Oh, cook poultry, cook poultry, medium. Cook poultry, low. And these are you know, c- uh, cook settings for meat, poultry, vegetables, uh, and that sort of thing. And then you have a, um, a setting button for uh, convenience foods. Convenience food pie. Convenience food medium. Frozen convenience food one. Frozen convenience food two. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's like if you want to cook um, your stoppers, macaroni and cheese, or something like that. And um, you can have the settings for that. And under underneath, um, we have three multifunction buttons. 10, 20 minutes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 10, 20. Uh, your, the first button on the left is your minutes button and also it's used for pounds or kilos uh, so that's for pounds or kilos so you know for your programming and then um, then we have the one minute two minutes three minutes one minute two minute you know your, your uh, one minute increment button or your ounce button and then the third button is uh, three minutes, ten seconds. Your every it goes every ten seconds. Um, it also changes uh, the setting from pounds and ounces to uh, kilos and you know kilos and grams. Cancel. So and then underneath uh, again I was I'm hit, I I hit the cancel button to clear the programming. Uh, on the bottom, we have the first button. These are the diamond-shaped ones now. 
the first button is your uh, cancel or pause button and then the middle one is your auto minute button that's this when you press that it starts off with one minute and it starts um, uh, it starts the uh, process the the microwave going and then um, you have the start button all the way to the right that's when you type in your minutes and seconds and then you press the start button so that's all the buttons here oh very good very good how about giving us a demo of how it actually works okay um, say I wanted to make um, well, it's a, a cup of coffee you know for instance I would since the uh, since we're the, the default button is in the um, high in, in the pow high power you know that's that's the default setting um, all I'd have to do is say I want to make coffee I just type in with a one minute button one minute and then one minute ten seconds one minute twenty seconds start high power one minute twenty seconds yeah and the RF sound that you hear is not coming from the microwave itself, but from the actual speaker. Right, I can hear that. Yes, uh-huh. Well, that may not be picked up on tape, but there is a sound to, I guess, alert the person that it's actually on type of thing. Yeah, it's actually the, the sound of the speaker causing that, um, that sound there. Right, I'm, I'm sure they do that intentionally to maybe to alert a person that it's on type of thing. Yeah. Great. Great. It's quite a handsome unit, I can tell you. I mean, it, it, it's very handsome looking. It's a very nice, nice unit indeed. Uh, very good sized buttons, certainly. Uh, you know, you can't miss them, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, they are very, um, they're, they're molded buttons. Right, a molded type of uh, plastic button. Complete. Great. That's what so it, it shut down. It's the the uh, the uh, cup of coffee would be ready. So yeah. So how do we retrieve the cup of coffee? Well, <laughs> then there's a um, a big uh, not only a button but a I think a depression button underneath the speaker. Uh huh. Um, Door open. And you press that, and it opens the door. See, it says, even says door open. That's pretty <laughs> remarkable, huh? <laughs> yeah. So then you would retrieve the cup of coffee, and... Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, exactly. And then you get your cup of coffee. And then you have it, right, right. Yeah. Right. And then you just do... Door closed. Door closed, <laughs> yeah. And there you go. Now, another interesting feature of this microwave is um, when you do your program settings, like if you want to... Uh, defrost your poultry, for instance, and you set the amount of um, pounds of that poultry, you know, the, the weight of the poultry, and as you're cooking, or as you're defrosting it, um, there'll come a time where it'll s stop, and then it'll tell you rearrange food. It'll actually pause and tell you to rearrange food. Um, so you do that, and then you put it back in and press the start button again and it continues on with the defrosting process.
process. I see. And it, and then when it's done, I mean, this is something a lot of us don't think about, but when it's done, sometimes if it's something real hot, it'll tell you to leave to stand. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of us, you know, when, when something is done, we just run to the microwave and open it and it's still sizzling away. So I guess for a safety measure or or to let it set some in the microwave, it tells you leave to stand. I see. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I see. Well, it certainly is a nice unit, and you say, uh, as far as you know, they do still make them, huh? Yes. Great. Great. I'll tell you what, I'll take one, huh? <laughs> that would be great. It also uh, it also lets you know that the door is open if you try to press the buttons. Oh, yeah. Door oh, yeah. Uh -huh. is open, so uh, that way, close the door, and then you can proceed on with your... Right, right, right. Uh, Very good. Okay, well, thank you very much for being my visitor today, Joy. Thank you for showing me this unit. I'll tell you what, I'll take one, huh? <laughs> You'll take one, yeah. Sure. Yeah, give me 350 and <laughs> you got a deal. There you go. <laughs> Thanks a million for being on the main menu today. If this interests you, you can drop by www.cobalt.co.uk and you can probably get more information on this particular product as well as their other talking products. That's www.cobalt, that's K-O-B-O-L-T, dot C-O dot U-K. Well, that's it for this week. Until next week, this is DJC at calweb.com for ACB Radio's main menu, thanking you for listening. See you next week. Microwave.
ACB Radio Mainstream, the main menu program, taking a pause for a cup of coffee with Rachel Robinson, one of the artists who appears on the ACB Radio Cafe, incidentally, which you can hear on our acbradio.org website. There's a version for broadband users and lovely crystal clear MP3 stereo, and a mono version for modem users. That's the microwave song. I wonder if Rachel's microwave talks. I suppose it's only natural. Many of us always want to have the latest and greatest on our computers. That sometimes means that we are willing to take a few risks and beta test software. When a company says that a software is a beta test product, it means that it is most likely to have bugs. The people who develop the software have done their best to debug it in-house, but it's only until you get a piece of software out in the field, testing it on a range of systems and in a range of environments, that you really start to find out what the developers might have overlooked. All companies that release beta software tell us this and make it very clear that there are considerable risks involved in beta testing a product. Hinterjoyce recently released a beta version of a patch to JAWS for Windows 3.5 that adds a few minor enhancements and fixes a few bugs. There is a disclaimer on their web page. People should read it. Uh, it is beta software and therefore it is bound to have bugs. Nevertheless, even those experienced beta testers who know what they're getting into sometimes get frustrated. The following was submitted to me, and it is in no way meant to be a slight attentive Joyce, because they're doing a great job, and beta software is bound to have bugs, so I want to make that clear. However, it was such a wonderful piece of sound editing, and also very, very funny, that I just couldn't resist playing this to you. Welcome to the JAWS for Windows Patch Setup Program. Please relax while Dr. JAWS examines your system. This may take a couple of minutes. Dr. JAWS, please wait. Dr. JAWS, Dr. JAWS is diagnosing your system. Dr. JAWS has found settings for JFW which you have spent years and years customizing for each of your applications. Dr. JAWS has no respect for you nor your settings files. Dr. JAWS is now permanently deleting all of your JFW settings files. Please wait. Dr. JAWS found errors with JFW. Too bad. Dr. JAWS will not fix them. Dr. JAWS, this program has performed an illegal operation and will be shut down. If the problem persists, contact the program vendor. Close button. Thank you for installing the JFW update patch. Now you're screwed. You are a loser. Ha 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 ha. Well, that's one way of venting your frustration. Thank you very much to Patrick Perdue for submitting that. Uh, just a reminder that uh, the JAWS for Windows beta patch is working just fine on many people's systems. There was an issue reported, uh, which I think prompted that little piece relating to the preservation of existing settings. It is always important that you back up your existing installation of any piece of software when you install it just in case you want to revert to your previous installation there are a number of important uh, enhancements to JFW version 3.5 and if you want to test that you in most cases won't have any problems I expect there will be some rectification shortly of the uh, losing of settings uh, in the next version of the JFW patch Main Menu Main Menu 
concludes this first edition of Main Menu. Hope you liked it. Thanks to all who contributed and to you for listening. I'm Jonathan Mosen. We're back next week. <laughs>